Heavenly Father, you are so good, you are, are so gracious and so powerful, and we know that our lives are best when we live totally surrendered to you. Would you please strengthen us to live that kind of life? And as part of that, God, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear from you, and may we respond rightly to you as we hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start off my sermon here. Don't say that word out loud right now. Just look at it. R-O-O-T. Now, how do you pronounce that word? I have a question for you. I, I was having a, let's say, a disagreement with somebody who was brought up on the East Coast about this word. So, this word, R-O-O-T, does it rhyme with foot or boot? So, do you say it root or root? I want to see a show of hands on this. So, you can only pick one. Either it rhymes with foot or it rhymes with boot. Do you say it root, rhyming with foot? Raise your hand. Okay, okay. How about root, rhyming with boot? Okay, those of you who are the ones that are wrong, that's okay. But, um, <laughs> do we have a sign on our door that says there's no wrong answers here? There's, there's no. Uh, it doesn't matter how you say that word, but um, I wanted to start out with that because I want to start off with my big idea today. We're going to get into a passage of scripture, but I want to start off with this idea. When the gospel takes root, lives are changed. Even if it takes root, that happens. But, uh, when the gospel takes root, lives are changed. Now I want to use an illustration now to talk about the word root. We have some of these flowers at our house. They are white anemones, and they spread like wildflowers. Maybe they are wildflowers. I don't know. If they're in the wild, I suppose they are. But these things just take, we have them kind of in, in one corner of our garden, and they just take over. And I think they're really beautiful. Like, I don't mind when they, when they spread into our lawn and everywhere else. Christine kind of tries to keep them contained. I just think they're really beautiful. And they just have a reputation for being flowers that grow well. And if, if you'd like to get some of them from us, we have some to spare, as you might be able to tell. But uh, that's what these flowers do. They, when they take root, they spread and they grow. And that is an illustration of what the gospel message is meant to do. It, it takes root, and it is meant to spread and to grow as well. And then let me use another analogy. This is a picture of an oak sapling. Now, I, I picked a picture in which you can only see what's above ground, because if you were to see this, like we see this often at our house. We have oak trees and there are lots of squirrels that are around and they hide acorns and, and sometimes we see oak saplings that grow. And they, if they're growing like two inches away from our house, we don't want them to grow there. So I might go to one of these oak tree saplings and just kind of, you know, try to reach down and pull it up and I realize I can't quite do that. And, and if they get to be a certain height, I mean, it's just like, here I am, you know, I weigh, what, 170 pounds, and here's this sapling that weighs a few ounces, and I try to pull it out, and I can't do it. Um, it should be a good practical joke. I think uh, my, my kids are in the children's church. I should have them try to pull out some of these oak tree saplings. Would you just mind getting that for me? And You won't be able to do it if, it's, if the tree is even just a little sapling. Sometimes you just, you got to work and work and work at it, because that's what happens when that kind of a tree takes root. It is strong. So, so that would obviously be an analogy for what the gospel message can do in us. The, the gospel message, when it takes root in us, can powerfully, powerfully change our lives. So, obviously now, I use these as analogies of what the gospel can do in us. We are doing a sermon series here where we're walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're actually going to start in the book of 1 Thessalonians today. 
The, the story of what happened in Thessalonica is quite amazing. We looked at it last week in Acts 17. That's kind of the back story of how the gospel message went to Thessalonica. Paul, Silas, and Timothy brought the gospel message there, and it looks like they weren't there for very long. Maybe even only three weeks. But something very powerful happened there. The gospel took root, and lives were powerfully changed. So as we go through this sermon series, you maybe already are getting these two points, but I, I want you to consider these not just today, but over the next weeks and months as we walk through First Thessalonians. Two points. One, the gospel will have a very powerful impact in our lives if we allow it to take root. And then the second point, the gospel will have a very powerful impact in the lives of people around us if we spread. So over the next weeks and months, as we, I'm thinking maybe about two months it'll take us to walk through the book of 1 Thessalonians. I want us to be encouraged as we see what happened there in Thessalonica, as we see what happened as, as their faith spread as well to other regions. We see powerful things, and I want you to know that that can happen in our lives as well, and in Fergus Falls and the surrounding areas and across the world. So what I want you to be doing, I want you to read and reread the book of 1 Thessalonians. As we do a sermon series here, you'll, you'll learn some things if you just come and listen to me preach, but you will learn much more if you do your work on it. So I want to encourage you, maybe even every week, you would just pick a day and, and read through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It only takes up, I think it's three pages in my Bible, and uh, you can read it in a sitting quite easily. Some of you maybe have a Bible reading plan, and you're like, oh, that's going to get in the way of my Bible reading plan. Well, maybe just want you to consider spending some time to get to know this book really well over the next couple of months. So for today, we're just going to look at the first three verses. First Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 3. I'd like to read them now. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 1, we see some of the things that we talked about last Sunday. For those of you that weren't here again in the book of Acts, we see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy brought the gospel message to Thessalonica. They were committed to doing that. They, they traveled far and wide. Oftentimes they would go by boat. That's again why I picked this uh, PowerPoint image here of a boat on the water. It reminds us of, of the way that we should live on mission, going wherever God calls us to go. And, and that might mean staying here and sharing the gospel with people around us. It might mean that God sends you elsewhere to, to spread the gospel message. But wherever God leads us, I want us to be people who go with the gospel message. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they went to Thessalonica, and it started to go really well for them. Like I mentioned, in the first three weeks, it says there that a bunch of people believed their message and started following them. But then some problems came because some of the people in Thessalonica started to see all this impact that, these, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were having, and they didn't like it. And, and they wanted to kick them out of the city. And, and Paul and the others got the message, and, and they left and went to the next city. Now, from a human standpoint, we might think, well, that didn't go so well. It, it started well, but then it ended, ended terribly. And what would happen then? What, what, from our perspective, what do we think would happen to this new baby church in Thessalonica? We might think that it would start to fizzle out. 
But that's not at all what happened. Something very powerful happened in Thessalonica. The church grew and grew and grew. And as you read through the book of First Thessalonians, you get this picture of a really strong church. How in the world did that happen? Well, let me remind you of something that we, we looked at last Sunday. It's, it's the power of the gospel. I'll go back to Acts 17 here, verses 2 through 3, and I'll read it. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. There, and there's great power in the scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Paul's message was that Jesus suffered and died, but that he was raised to life again. That's the gospel. And, and the gospel, by the way, let me just clarify it for you, we've all sinned. Every single one of us has sinned against God. There's not a one of us that could go up to God and say, God, I did it pretty good, didn't I? Every one of us has sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God, and the Bible is very clear that the punishment for that is death. We see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden. As Adam and Eve sinned, they were told ahead of time that they would surely die. And they did. And that's, by the way, why humans still die, physically speaking, because of sin. But it's even worse than just a physical death. It is a spiritual separation from God as well. A spiritual separation that would last for the rest of eternity. That is what the Bible tells us. That is what we would have earned unless God stepped in. But that's the good news. Gospel means good news. The good news is that God did step in. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And when he died for our sins, he paid our penalty. He died for us so that anyone who receives him as Savior and Lord can be completely forgiven and can have eternal life. But we know that that's not the end of the story either. He didn't just die. Three days later, he was raised again. And the resurrection stands even today as proof of God's power, that he can bring life out of death. And it's great news for us because we were all spiritually dead, every one of us. So have you received this wonderful gift of the gospel message? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? If so, the powerful work of the gospel is already at work in you. And if so, you're, wonder you're ready for more wonderful works of God in your life if you continue in the faith. The power of the gospel. So have you received it? That's one question. And then the other question, are you spreading it to other people? We see that the gospel has a powerful impact in the lives. For those of you who have received it, you know the impact in your life. We, we see the powerful impact as we look at a city like Thessalonica, and, and we see it still today as the gospel continues to change lives. God's gospel does powerful things. Let's be people who embrace it and who proclaim it. Then let's move on to the last phrase in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, the one where it says grace and peace to you. We might just think, oh, that's a, like a nice hallmark greeting sort of a thing to say. And, and in fact, Paul said it in all 13 of the letters that he wrote, grace and peace, in, in some form or another. He said it at the beginning of each of those letters. Now, why did he say it? Was it just what he said instead of hello? Or was it something that had deep theological meaning to him? I think it's the latter there. So let's just look quickly at each of those words. Grace. What is grace? Well, grace, the word means gift. It's the gift of God that we could be in right standing with him. 
that though we were enemies, though we had separated ourselves from him due to our sin, the grace of God is that he loves us and wants us to be with him forever. And it's not just the grace which gets us into salvation, it is that, but it's also the grace which will strengthen us for the rest of our life with him. Grace is a wonderful gift. And then peace also is a wonderful gift. Um, A couple weeks ago here, Brian Carlson preached a sermon on peace, and he had some wonderful things to say. He reminds us that that peace is wholeness. It's, It's completeness. It's the way things that are supposed to be. It's the peace that God offers to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can live our whole lives at peace. Even if things aren't peaceful around us, we can still have that soul peace. So when Paul says grace and peace to you, I mean, you could preach whole sermons on just those two words. In fact, people have done that. It's not what I'm going to do today, but people have done that. Let's move on now to verse 2. I'll reread it. Paul says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. What strikes me in this verse is the word always. Uh, He also says in the next verse continually, that he continually remembers them before God. Now, it's interesting to me because if you know 1 Thessalonians, you know some famous verses at the end in chapter 5 where he commands us to pray continually and to give thanks in all circumstances. And sometimes when I see those verses, I think, how? How in the world can I do that? So it's interesting to me that, that four chapters before Paul commands us to pray continually and to give thanks in all circumstances, he models it. By, by showing the people that he had been praying for them continually. The people of Thessalonica had become so dear to him, even in a short period of time, that he always continually prayed for them. Now, I don't think that that means that he prayed 24 hours a day for them, nor do I think that it means that he only prayed for them, because Paul said similar things, actually, to the Christians in Rome and the Christians in Colossae. What I do think it means is that Paul was committed to praying regularly for other people. And it's a great model for us. In fact, I want to ask you a question here. Application. What does your prayer list look like? I think too often our prayer lives become... The the pattern is that when we go to God, it's because we want something. That... I think about me and what I want, and that's when I don't have it, then I think to go to God in prayer. And that's, you know what, it's okay to ask God for stuff. God tells us in his word that we can ask him for things. But I want our prayers to be more than that. Okay? Don't, I'm not saying that you have to stop praying for yourself or praying for the things that you want or need, but I would like if we would all follow the model here of Paul and pray regularly and constantly for other people as well. And I think, what did Paul's prayer list look like? You think of all the different places that he went on his missionary journeys, and we get snapshots that he says that he's always praying for these people in all these different locations. He must have had a long prayer list. So what does yours look like? If we were to have a written transcript of your prayers, and we took a highlighter, and the the ones that we highlight in green are the prayers for you, and the ones we highlight in purple are the ones for other people, what, what color does your prayer list look like? So I want to encourage you, I want to urge you to pray regularly for other people. And I don't think it means we need to spend 24 hours a day in prayer, but I do think that it means that we regularly go to God, regularly talking to him about the needs of others. Okay, verse 3. 
We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. As you hear that verse, many of you might have already picked out this famous triad of faith, hope, and love. It's made famous in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember where Paul said, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. These three words are are powerful forces, empowered by the gospel itself, by, by God himself, Take a few moments to describe, to define them. Faith. How do you define faith? Well, one thing I like to remind you is that whenever you see words like faith, believe, or trust in the New Testament, they almost always come from the same word. Those three words have the same meaning. And it's this idea that even though we can't see God with our eyes, we can know Him. We can walk with Him. We can learn things about Him, and we can choose to go His way. Faith means all of that. It means devoting our lives to him, being committed to walking regularly with him. What about love? How would you define the word love? It's such a common word that it can be, can be kind of hard to define. And maybe the best place to start in our definition of love is with God himself. God is love. Right? We learn that in 1 John 4. It says it two times in that chapter. God is love. Now one other way that I would like to define the word love is to say... It means acting on behalf of the needs of others. So let's combine those two ideas. God is love. Love means acting on behalf of the needs of others. That's what we saw God do for us, right? God saw us in our sinful state heading towards eternal death, and he did everything that was needed for us to be made right with him. He sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in love, willingly offered himself for us. So love isn't just some feeling. It is the committed action of someone who loves another and works for their benefit. And then we come to hope. How would you define the word hope? Now, by its definition, hope has to do with future events. But its power is felt in the present. Now, hope isn't just some wish that we have. It could be, if, you know, as we say, I, I hope that the Vikings win tonight and win the Super Bowl. Although, it seems like Vikings fans are way more pessimistic to actually say that. But... Uh, Our hope in God is a certainty. He has proved it to us. In many ways, uh, the greatest of those would be through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the certainty of hope that there is life after death. And because we can know that and many other things for sure about the future, it can give us confidence to face whatever comes our way. So here's my definition of hope. Hope is a promise for the future which strengthens our present reality. It's a promise for the future that strengthens our present reality. Or here's a theologian, James Grant. He said, For the Christian, hope is a confident expectation that the future is in God's hands and he is working all things for our good. So, faith, hope, and love, three powerful forces at work in our lives. But one of the things I love about 1 Thessalonians 1.3 is that these words, faith, hope, and love, they don't just stand by themselves. It's not like they're just theological concepts that we have to wrestle with in our minds. I want you to, to expand the scope here a little bit, and I'm going to underline some other words with them on the PowerPoint here. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. Faith, hope, and love should dramatically and positively impact the way that we live our lives. People around us should be able to see our faith, hope, and love in action. 
I've heard this said a number of helpful ways. I want to give you just a few glimpses of what other people have said about this. Uh, one of them is Pastor Josh. He and I were talking earlier this week, and he said there should be a provenness to our faith. I like that, that, that uh, these, these things, faith, hope, and love, they aren't just things that we believe, that people should be able to, to look at us and to see that we have faith, to see that we have love. It should be proven, like you would go into a science lab and prove something. We should be able to, by our lives, show that we have faith, hope, and love. Another person once said to me that if we have sincere faith, it should have symptoms with it. Just like if you say that you have a cold, you should be able to say what your symptoms are. Well, if you say that you have faith, hope, and love, how is it showing itself in the way that you live your life? And then uh, pastor theologian John Stott, he said, a true faith in God leads to good works, and without works, faith is dead. So again, this isn't just intellectualism here. Our faith is meant to be lived out. So let's look at these connections here. How is our faith supposed to be lived out? Well, in verse 3, it should be shown in our work. Now that word for work is exactly what you think it is. It's the effort that we put into things to get things done. So our faith should lead to work. Now recently, a lot of theologians have said some really helpful things about faith and work. And I love this. It's been so helpful, I think, for the body of Christ to talk about what what our work should look like for those of us who have faith. And here's one of the ways that I want to think about it. When we come here on Sunday mornings, it's kind of like halftime in a game. The the game is all week long, and and we come here, we we huddle together, we talk about who God is, how we want to live, maybe we're thinking about how we lived in the past week, and maybe we see some things that didn't go well, and maybe we think about the coming week, and we think about the things that are coming for us, and we want to be strengthened to live the way that God wants us to, because your worship isn't just what you do here on Sunday morning. God created you to worship on Monday through Saturday as well, and that gives your work meaning. And and I love this idea that... (laughs) It's not just we pastors who have meaningful things to do on Monday through Saturday. We all do. And that's true if you work. That's true if you're a stay-at-home mom, which is harder work, I think. That's true if you're retired because you still have useful things to do. It's true if you're a student. God has good works prepared for all of us to do. And we, by faith, are to enter into those things as a way to honor God, as a way to shine our light in this world, as a way for the gospel message to go forth as a way for us to be productive in this world. It's interesting that even before sin came into the world, God gave Adam and Eve work to do in the Garden of Eden. So work is not a necessary evil. We see so many people who treat work that way, that it's just something I have to do in order to get money so I can live my life the way that I want to. No, that is not the proper way to look at our work. God gives us useful work to do and we can worship him and we can serve others, we can serve our communities as we do the work that God has prepared for us to do. Let's do it by faith. Let's let our faith inform our work. So again, this, what we're doing here this morning is not the be-all, end-all of your Christian existence. I want you to go from here and work hard for God. Work hard to serve others. Then, okay, the next one, labor. There's this connection between labor and love. This word labor, it, it implies work, but it kind of kicks it up a notch. It's, it's strenuous work, intense work. So this love 
that leads to labor, again, this is not just an emotional sort of a love. It's not just in our brains. This is the kind of love that goes the extra mile. This is the kind of love in which we go out of our way to help people with their needs. Now, we see this brilliantly lived out in the lives of the people of Thessalonica. That's one of the things that I want you to see as you read ahead, especially in chapter 4 we'll see this, that even though Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there for just a short time sharing the gospel with them, their love grew and grew and grew. And it showed in their actions. And what I would say is that when we love, we live out what God wants for us. God is love. And remember first chapter of Genesis again, we were created in the image of God. What does that mean in regard to love? It means that we should love others. Or another way that I would like to say it is we look at the two greatest commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first one is first for a reason. Let's not forget that. It's, it's interesting how our world has picked up on the second greatest command, and they want us, they, they, they command us Christians to love your neighbor as yourself. And I say, amen, let's do it. And I say, let's not forget the first one that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because as we love God, his love will overflow from us into the lives of those around us. So, as we love God, he will give us the strength that we need so that we can labor for other people in love. God modeled this for us by sending his son Jesus. Jesus modeled it for us by fulfilling all the work that the Father had to do for him. Similarly, then, our love should show that we love God, that we're 100% committed to living according to his ways, and that we will joyfully love those around us with the love that God gives us. Okay, then verse, uh, the, the third phrase in verse 3, endurance inspired by hope. The word endurance here is the word that means to persevere, which means that we keep going even in spite of difficulty. God knows that we have difficult times in our lives, but we have hope to cling to. And if we have hope, we can face whatever comes our way. You see, our hope is in Jesus Christ. We know that he has already come and died for us, and he was raised from the dead. That means that if we believe in him, we have a certain future with God. The blessing of God with us is the blessing he loves to give to his people. And because we have that hope to look forward to, we know that we can face whatever comes our way because we can go through it with God. Now let me clarify, I'm not saying that whatever we do, we can expect God to come with us and do it. That wouldn't be right for me to pick a path of sin and say, here, is, here I am, God, be with me and bless me. No. But what I am saying is that whatever God allows us to go through, he also has a path on which we can walk. And if we're on that path with him, then the blessing of God with us is right there with us. And it reminds us of the hope that we have in the future, and that future hope can strengthen us for today. And it should result in us enduring. So are you going through anything difficult right now? How's your endurance doing in the midst of it? Has, has there been a time where you just kind of want to throw your hands up and give up? Or, or just retreat into yourself? Uh, for some people, maybe that's the temptation for you. Well, whatever difficulty you're going through, I want to encourage you to endure with hope because God gives us that certainty of hope. Right now, we know the character of God. We know that he loves us, that he wants to be with us, and that he will strengthen us for whatever comes our way. May we be people who trust in him like that. 
I like how Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 puts it. Says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So God has a race for us. On this race, we keep looking to Jesus, trusting that God will give us all that we need as we walk with him. So, faith, love, and hope, they lead to work, labor, and endurance. John Calvin said this description in verse 3 is a brief definition of true Christianity. I like that. Faith, hope, and love, which obviously are super important in our lives, leading to work, labor, and endurance. That's a, a, brief, de- a, excuse me, a brief definition of true Christianity. And for the Christians in Thessalonica, faith, hope, and love, it was way more than just a greeting card. It was a way of life for them, empowered by God, empowered by the gospel. So what about you? Here's the question I want to get to. Has the gospel taken root in you such that you work, labor, and endure with faith, hope, and love? Say that one again. Has the gospel taken root in you such that you work, labor, and endure with faith, hope, and love? Now again, I'm so impressed by what we saw in Thessalonica. And truth be told, I'm impressed by what I see in you guys as well. But in Thessalonica, they only had Paul with them for a short time, but the gospel stuck with them and had a huge impact. Again, from a human perspective, we might have expected things to fizzle out there because Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there for three weeks and then persecution came and they had to leave. And we might think, oh no, this little church is left to themselves. What are they going to do? But they were not left to themselves. They had embraced the gospel message. They had God with them. And even after Paul, Silas, and Timothy left, that church was strengthened. I wonder what Paul, Silas, and Timothy thought. It it says in in other places in Scripture that they wanted to go back and see the people of Thessalonica. I wonder what they expected to find. I, I wonder if they expected to find this church had just chucked it all aside and said, we'll just go back to our old way of life. But that's not what happened there. The gospel took root and lives were changed. Remember the parable of the soils? We might have expected the people in Thessalonica to be like the second soil. Jesus said of that second soil in Mark 4, 16-17, Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. That isn't what happened. Because the gospel took root. So what about you? Has the gospel taken root in you such that you work, labor, and endure with faith, hope, and love? Now, for me, as I say that, I know I fall short of that sometimes. But that's what I want. And and as I see those times where I've fallen short, I want to take those before God and say, God, I'm sorry that I messed up. Would you please strengthen me to work and to labor and to endure the way that you want me to? Now, it's interesting to me, and maybe a little bit sad, a lot sad, actually, that the Christians in Thessalonica who were Christians for just a very short time have showed more maturity than some Christians who have been going to church for 40 years. Now, that's me. I've been going to church for 40 years. Um, How mature am I? Well, that's the question I want us all to ask about. I want you to ask it to yourself. Are you seeing this kind of maturity in you that you keep going with faith 
and hope and love. But then what do we do if we don't see this kind of fruit? Should we beat ourselves up for it? Well, no, that's not the answer. Should we assume that God can't work in us like that? No. We know that God can do his powerful work in us because of how good the gospel message is. Now, I don't often use the phrase recommitting your life to Christ. I I talk a lot here about receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and then continuing to live in him. And we'll get to those. That's from our benediction verse, which we'll say at the end of our service here in a few moments. But I want to talk about the phrase recommitting your life to Christ today because I think it might apply. Here's what we know. The gospel is powerful and it will change our lives when it takes root in us. But we also know that the things of life can get in the way, like the the second soil in that parable, or like the third soil as well. Jesus mentioned the the weeds that can grow up and choke out that plant. So for us, maybe there's been some rocky times, or maybe there's been some weeds. Maybe the things of life are just kind of getting in the way and choking out our life. We were created to live for God. We were not created to live for the things of this world. And, And sometimes we have settled for far too little in our Christian experience, claiming Jesus, but then living just like the world lives. So what do we do? What's the answer? Well, the answer is that we would be fully on board with the gospel message. You see, the gospel isn't just a message that we receive at one point, but then move away from. No, it is a message that we are to embrace. That's how we enter into our relationship with God, and it is a message that we are to continue to live out and continue to spread to other people. We are meant to be rooted in Christ. We were meant not only to give our lives to him, but to continue to live in him. So do you need to make a recommitment to Christ today? As you look at your work and your labor and your endurance, is there something that's lacking? As you look at your faith, hope, and love, do you see something that's lacking? If so, tell God that you want to do it his way. He will strengthen you with everything you need to keep going for him and with him. That's what God does through his gospel, and it will change your life if you let it take root. So I just want to ask you all to consider, is there a recommitment to Christ that you need to make today? For some of you, maybe it goes like this. I gave my life to Christ, and maybe I started really strong, but maybe I've seen something kind of slipping in the past few months or years. Or or maybe you're saying, you know what, man, I have some good days with this and I have some bad days. And I I wish I could have fewer of those bad days because I'd remember these things, that they would be closer to my heart as I keep walking with Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. So I just want to ask you, where's your heart at? Is there any sort of recommitment to Christ that you need to make today? I'm going to say a prayer. I'd be glad if you didn't even listen to what I said and you just talked to God with your own prayer right now because the, the important thing that's going to happen right now is your response to God is that I believe that every one of us who has received Jesus as our Savior and Lord we've also received the Holy Spirit and I want you to listen to what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do right now in regard to your faith and hope and love in regard to your commitment to Christ so I'm going to pray feel free to say your own prayer as I do it Heavenly Father, we thank you that you lead us in ways that are good. You've given Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who hasn't ever received Jesus as Savior and Lord, we pray that they would do that right now. 
acknowledging their sin before you, praying for forgiveness, praying to give their lives to you. And God, for all of us who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we know that the life that we were called to is the life where we we give our lives to you, to follow you in the path that you have for us. But God, you know better than we do that sometimes we slip up or perhaps even stray or wander away. And Lord, we want to recommit our lives to you to continue to walk with Jesus Christ as our Lord. Lord, we thank you for what you can do in us with your powerful gospel message when it takes root. For those of us who have faith in you, who, who hope in what is to come, to strengthen us for right now, to love you and to love others, Lord, we want to work and labor and endure exactly in the ways that you would have us do that. We acknowledge that sometimes we let things get in the way and we want to take those things before you even right now as we're, as we're talking about recommitting our lives to you, God. If there's anything in our lives that has been hindering us or dragging us down or that we have allowed to let us wander away from you, Lord, we give those things to you. It's all on the table. You can have it all. God, we want to be people who walk with you with wholehearted devotion. Who recognize joyfully that Jesus is our Lord, our Master, our King. So God, whether for the first time or for the one thousandth time or wherever we're at in this, we want to commit to you, to walking with you on the path that you have for us. And we praise you for how you will strengthen us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.